Bible with you uh, on your phone or in your hand, then uh, that's where we're going, Mark chapter 10. I'm going to pick it up at verse 32. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Will you pause to pray together? Father God, we pause today in this season of Easter when we remember together the greatest sacrifice of all. And our prayer, Lord, each and every time is that you would make us understand it. You would help us to take it in, what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to die and bear our sins. We thank you so much today that we have a living hope, that we have a Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand all that you've done for us and to enter in more fully into all that you've opened to us and all that you've won for us. And so, Lord, as we open your word today, would you open our hearts and pray that by the 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 ministry of your spirit among us that you would take of your word and minister it to our hearts and lives Uh, lord would you take of my words i pray and and filter out all of me uh, that lord we might see jesus lifted up in whose name we stand and in whose name we pray today in jesus name amen so through his eyes I want to pose for you quite uh, an unimaginable scenario. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you were watching, let's just say, an award ceremony. Let's pick one. Let's just pick the Oscars. Uh, And during this award ceremony, let's just say, for instance, 
that the presenter, a comedian known for being controversial and provocative, makes a comment about somebody's wife in the audience. Uh, let's just say that this wife is well known and that the, the uh, person that she's married to is a famous actor who's, who's known for being cool and suave and charming and relaxed and, yeah. Uh, let's just imagine for a moment, this is unthinkable, isn't it, that this person then decides to get up from their seat in the middle of the ceremony, live on television, walk up to this comedian and slap them across the face and then return to their seat. Isn't that unimaginable? Unthinkable? Well, let's imagine then that he carries on and starts to shout stuff to this comedian who tries to carry on presenting the award uh, that he's there for. Uh, how many people have been talking about this this week? How many people have been reading about this this week? How many of us have opinions about this? Yeah, let's keep those hands up. We all do. It's interesting, isn't it? There's the event itself. And then, as if the general public were the judge and jury on the rights and wrongs of this, the media then keep presenting evidence to us, don't we? Uh, so we see what happens, and then the media turn around and say, ah, but the thing that the guy commented on was actually his wife's medical condition. And suddenly we start to see it differently. And then another report tells us, ah, but the comedian who made the joke about the actor's wife didn't know that she had a medical condition when he made the joke. And we start to see it differently again. And then someone else wades in and says, ah, yes, but this isn't the first time that this comedian has made a joke about this actor's wife. And we start to see it differently again. And then somebody else reports, well, at least he got to go and stay in his 2.5 million pound uh, RV and get cooked for him as he drove home. So I'm sure the joke didn't hurt him or sting him for far too long. And in the middle of all this, if we're honest, we keep shifting, don't we? We keep feeling different things about different people and the rights and wrongs of it all. And it's not just the rich and the famous, the people that we see on our screens, that we do that with. We do it all the time. We do it with each other. It's amazing how often something can happen and the same two people can view the same event so differently. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever seen somebody that you know and for whatever reason, they just seem to not want to talk to you that day? They seem quite cold or, or distant. And in your mind, you start to think, maybe that person doesn't like me. And then you go in and you start to think about all the other times when actually that person seemed cold and, and distant. And you start to make a little story about, well, maybe this is just a nasty, horrible person that I don't want to be friends with at all. And then one day you find out that actually that person had just received some really bad news or was going through a tough time. And all of a sudden, just that extra little tiny bit of information suddenly rewires that whole story and you see the whole thing differently. And all those feelings, in just that moment, in just that shift of perspective, change it all. It's so important, isn't it, that we don't just view life from our own heads, from our own minds, from our own eyes, but that we seek to understand other people's perspectives on things. It's interesting to me as we read through the Gospels, we've just read a passage from Mark chapter 10 where, where Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples uh, for what's about to happen. It's actually the third time Jesus had tried to tell them as clearly as he can, as he can uh, about what's about to happen in, in Jerusalem. And yet they don't understand it. 
And of course, from our perspective, 2,000 years later, when we've got the letters of Paul and Peter and John, and we've had hymns written about it and books written about it and seminars and films, we look back to the cross and think, why couldn't they, why couldn't they see it? There's one time that always makes me smile when Jesus says to them, what's going to happen? And then he says, but three days later, I'll be raised from the dead. And the Bible tells us that the disciples <laughs> began to discuss among themselves what being raised from the dead means. And we would have done the same if we were there. And I think it's important as we approach Easter that we take a moment to try and view it through Jesus' eyes. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What did he come to do? It's important that, that we understand that. And it's also important because it's become quite fashionable at the moment to say things like, well, the Gospels were written after the event and were written as an attempt to try and sort of tidy up the mess, the failure of Jesus. And so certain things were inserted back in later on. Of course, the more we understand, the more evidence we find about the scriptures, the more we find out it was written very, very early. There simply wasn't time for that theological rewiring and, and re rewriting to happen. But what did before the event, what did Jesus say about it? Well, here's just one of the times Jesus is, is very, very clear about what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. This is not some vague prophecy about something that might happen in a certain way at a certain time. This is so, so specific. And I don't know, as I read that list, I wonder if any one of those things would have been enough to have put me off my purpose and scored me from, for, from my mission. Even one of those things. And the key question I want us to understand is, is Jesus' understanding of that event. Why did Jesus believe that this was going to happen? So we look at different occasions this morning when, when Jesus uh, speaks about his death. Not just in those sorts of ways, but, but kind of paints it for us uh, to understand it more. So we're going to need our, our study boots on this morning. We're going to dance around a whole bunch of, of different scriptures. Do you remember on um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? There was that fastest finger first. If you've got your Bible, you might get a paper cut this morning. Uh, but we're just going to look for a moment at what Jesus believed his death meant, what he told us his death meant. And any one of these would be worthy of study. But something happens, I think, when you step back and you look at them all together in one place. One of the ways in which Jesus spoke about his death was as a rebuilding of something, a remaking of something that existed. And that thing was the temple. The temple is actually really important in the story of Jesus. It's one of the first places we're told that he was taken uh, as an infant, and then he was taken back there as, as a teenager for a special festival. Uh, and in the crowd that's leaving, Mary and Joseph uh, start to journey home, and I presume Joseph thought Jesus was with Mary, and Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph, and somehow Jesus gets left behind. That must have been a horrific moment, right? The earthly parents of the Savior of the world have just lost him. And so they go tearing back to Jerusalem. And this is, this is three days after they realize he's not with them. And they find him there 
in the temple. And he's not panicked. He's not stressed. In fact, he looks very much at home. Now, this is festival time. And so there in Jerusalem, you've got the kind of, you know, not just the bread and butter bog standard preachers. You know, you've got the, you know, the green belt style speakers. You know, you've got the soul survivor artists there. And Jesus is sat among them holding his own, discussing things, talking about things, asking questions. And Mary and Joseph go running up to him and Mary grabs him and says, how could you do this to us? And Jesus looks back at her and says this. He says, as a teenager, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Why, why did you look? Where else would I be? Why, why did you look for me? And it's a phrase in the Greek that can either mean your father's house, but of course back in the day, if you were the firstborn son, your father's house was often the place of his business, and that would become your business. And so the word house and business were, were interchangeable back in Jesus' day. Didn't you know I'd be here? But more importantly, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Even as a young teenager, Jesus has a unique understanding of his relationship with God, of his identity, and more importantly, of, of his mission. I have business to do. I have work to do. And we read this throughout the Gospels, Jesus' um, awareness that there is work to do. This is just one occasion when he spoke about it. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, a word that can mean to fully accomplish or fulfill or to satisfy. Uh, Jesus was a person possessed by purpose. All, all the gospel writers write about this. This is not inserted later. He knew what he was here to do, and the temple is important to this. Interestingly, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is described as a, it's not a trick question, Carpenter, thank you, thank you. Ten points, fastest finger first. Um, described as a carpenter, a Greek word that can either mean a worker of wood uh, or, or a, a stonemason. And so it's likely that Jesus and his father at times worked on people's houses. Uh, there was a synagogue uh, not far from in, in, in Sepphoris that was being rebuilt, and it's highly likely, it would be very difficult to turn down work for Joseph back in the day, that they worked on that temple. Not fascinating. Jesus was a builder of temples. Uh, and back in the day, they were known for being quite strong, burly, kind of gruff people that would stand at the corner of markets and make claims. I can build your house in such amount of time. I can fix your table in for such and such amount of money. And they would stand and, and make claims. And there's one time when Jesus speaks about his death in this way. Destroy this temple, Jesus said. And I, in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus spoke about his death as a rebuilding. In Jesus' day, the, the temple was where you came to meet with God. If there was something wrong, it's where you went to make amends, to make sacrifice. And you would bring your offering or you would buy one in Jesus' day on, on the way in. And you would stand and the priests would look at it and see if it was a perfect sacrifice, if it was without blemish or, or birth defects. And if it was acceptable, it would be laid on the altar and you would watch as the priest sacrificed on your behalf 
on holy days, on high days, you'd watch as the priest went into the Holy of Holies, that place behind the veil, and made prayers on your behalf. There was a, a system. It was not a perfect, in Jesus' day, it was a very flawed system, but there was a system. But the way in which you understood your relationship with God was in that sort of corporate sense. I go and somebody else mediates for me. And Jesus says that his death is about a rebuilding. That now, he says, this temple, talking about himself, talking about his body, that now there is a new place where we can meet with God. And it does not demand a mediator. The sacrifice has been made for us in Jesus' death himself. He is the high priest and he is the perfect lamb sacrificed on our behalf. There has been a new and a living way that has been made for us. At the cross, we don't just see Jesus' death fully understood. We see the death of religion. What's it that Paul writes to the church in Colossians? That he took the old list of rules that stood against us and he nailed it to the cross. The way in which we come to God now, the temple, the place has been rebuilt through the death of Jesus. But that's not all. That's not the only way he spoke about his death. On another time, he's having a conversation with a guy called Nicodemus. We mentioned some of the sole survivor speakers of the day. Nicodemus would have been one of those. He had a nickname, Israel's teacher. And yet Nicodemus recognized in Jesus a power and an authority and a grace that was far beyond him. And so he kind of sneaks up to Jesus at night, finds out where he's staying and knocks on the door and Jesus speaks with him. And because of that understanding of Israel's history, of Israel's ways, Jesus dives into that history and picks out one example to show that his death is going to be a remedy for something. We have these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those words lifted up are really important. I've highlighted those so we can come back to them later on. Uh, but these words, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Do you ever read parts of the Bible and think, that sounds as if I should know what it's about? This is referring to uh, one of the most unique stories, actually, in the Old Testament from Numbers chapter 21, when the people of Israel are, are journeying from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And so, the, the hope of freedom is theirs, but they're not home yet, and they're sort of on, on the journey, and they're on the road. Uh, and there's this one time when this random batch of snakes catches up with their camp and is biting them, biting their heels. And they're called fiery serpents because the experience of being bitten was that you felt like you had fire in your blood. You felt like your body was, was, was really hot, was flaring up with a fever, and nobody had the answer for this. And so Moses, again acting as a high priest, acting as a mediator, goes and prays on the people's behalf. And God asks Moses to do something rather strange. He asks Moses to make a bronze snake on a pole and to lift it up. And that anybody that will go and look at this snake that's been lifted up would be healed. That there would not be a human remedy that they could find. It was not a herb or a spice that they dug out somewhere. It was this miracle. And if you had the faith to go and stand and look at it, you could be healed. And it's this beautiful picture 
of something precious, something costly, being taken and put into the furnace and beaten and battered into the image of the problem. And in Jewish thinking, of course, the snake represented evil itself, that influence that weaved its way into the Garden of Eden and undermined God's word and God's promise, that, that lie that was believed. And they make this image of this curse, but it's a curse that is on a, on a stick. It's been impaled. It's been defeated. This image of the curse defeated. And anyone that would come in faith and, and look at that uh, would find healing. And Jesus says, just as that snake was lifted up, so I've got to be lifted up. I've got to become an image of the problem, an image of the curse, something so precious, so beautiful, so costly, beaten and battered. In Jesus' teaching, he often refers back to prophecies uh, in the Old Testament and applies them to himself. And one that he does that with time and time again is Isaiah 53. That's how we know for sure that it's about Jesus. Uh, and in one, se- in one place he, he writes, he says this, For I say to you that that which is written must still be accomplished. There's that word again. It's got to be finished. It's got to be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end or must reach their, their, their end. Jesus says there is a time when people will look on me and think I'm a transgressor. What was it that that Isaiah says earlier in that passage? We thought him despised by God and rejected. Paul wrestled with that, didn't he, before he got saved. That The Old Testament tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what Jesus was doing for us, was willing. He who was without sin willing to become sin for us so that if we look to him in faith, we do not have to beat the bronze ourselves. We do not have to make a way because we cannot. But there is a remedy, Jesus says, and my death will be that remedy, the the healing that can take place. I often think that in our day, we, we, we sort of make light this issue of sin and we reduce it down to just wrongdoing. And of course, wrongdoing is is part of sin, but it's the consequence of the fact that we are sin, that sin in us, that we're born in a sinful state, a sinful condition. And there's things that we can do to tidy up our behavior, but Jesus came to deal with the issue of sin itself. There is a remedy, Jesus says, if you will look to me. I told you we need our study boots on. Number three. Jesus promised that his death would be a revealing of something. One of the things that we see often in um, Jesus' life is that groups of people would come to Jesus because they'd heard that he'd done a miracle somewhere. And they wanted to see him do a miracle. And so they'd come and sort of demand a sign. So these weren't people that were asking for healing for themselves or were in a desperate situation themselves. These were people who just wanted a show just wanted a circus. Show us something. They demand a sign. And on one occasion, Jesus says this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He's really talking about for the sake of it, for the show of it. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
So Jesus is at it again. Jesus is going back into Israel's history and choosing a story and, and bringing it forward and saying that this is, this is going to be a sign. Now, in the scriptures, a, a sign means to, to reveal something. A sign can only ever point to something that, that is already there. And so Jesus is saying that his death will be like a sign, like a sign of Jonah, a revealing of something. He goes on to say this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, who fancies that calling? So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, that prophet who was told, go to Nineveh and preach against it. And who in a state of desperate um, prejudice and hatred ran in the other direction. And then there's this amazing thing that happens. The sailors on the ship notice that a storm is coming up. And they start to panic and start to make sacrifices to their own gods. And Jonah is honest enough to say, it's because I'm running away from the God of Israel, the Lord of the land, the sea, and the sky. And so they throw him into the sea. And it becomes calm. And we're told that this great fish comes and, and swallows him up and swallows him whole. And then, three days and nights later, when Jonah's been praying desperately that the Lord would show him grace and forgive him, and I'm sure praying that the way in which he came out of the fish is the same way he went into the fish. I'm sure that crossed his mind. And as, as this happens, on the shores of Nineveh, a prophet is washed up who has been swallowed by a great fish and survived. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the religion in Nineveh worshipped a great fish who was meant to have spewed up creation. And so now there was this sign that a prophet of Israel had been swallowed by a fish and survived it. There was a sign that the gods that they trusted in were not gods at all, that there was a greater God, a, a God of o over all the earth. There was a new sign. And Jesus says that this is going to have to happen that I will be put in the belly of the earth for three days and for three nights. For Jesus' death would not be permanent. But there is a sign. Jesus is, is saying this in response to a question. And the question was, on what authority do you do these things? Show us a sign. And this is Jesus' response. So his death and his resurrection are to be a, a revealing of something. Uh, and Jesus goes on to explain that something is being revealed, that his death is, is a sign that the gods that we have trusted in are not gods at all, that the powers that be can do their worst to him. But there is another power, see, there is another kingdom there is a God who reigns and rules above them all. The um, amazing truth that Paul writes about as he writes to the church in Rome, talks about Jesus in this way. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection uh, answer an old question. They solve an old problem. Who is Jesus? His resurrection declares it and confirms it. He is the Son of God in power. 
So his death is a rebuilding, it's a remedy, uh, it's, uh, it, it's a rescue, and, and fourthly, it's a ransom. It's a ransom. We were reading, weren't we, in that passage of Scripture earlier, those two that come to Jesus just after his prophecy of all that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And interestingly, their response to that is to say, yeah, but after all of that, in heaven, in your kingdom, can I sit at your right and can my little brother sit at your left and can we have a key sort of role, a key place? No wonder they were called the sons of thunder. I mean, that's cheekiness to the nth degree, isn't it? And Jesus looks at them and says, you've misunderstood. I have not come, even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus saw his death as a, as a payment, as a ransoming that brings freedom for people that are held captive to something. Now, this word ransom would have been one that for Jews that knew their scriptures well, uh, th they would have recognized from Psalm 49, uh, where the psalmist is talking about how sometimes wealth can distort our view of things, uh, that sometimes wealth can think that we're entitled to certain things, and the thinking of wealth uh, can il infiltrate our thinking. Uh, and it says there, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem, which means to buy back, his brother, nor to give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom. When it comes to how God feels about you, your wealth, your status, what you drive, what you wear, your job, it simply doesn't factor in at all. I cannot buy anyone else's freedom. I simply don't have the currency. I can't buy my own. When it stands between me and the holy standards of God's glory, I'm bankrupt to pay him back. Even if I try my best to live every day as perfectly as I can and try to accrue credit, I cannot get rid of what's behind me, what I've done before. I cannot give God a ransom. But there is one who can. So you and I need to find somebody who has lived a perfect life and go to them and ask them to willingly offer that life in our place. And if you're looking for somebody to pay your price, Jesus says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, a repayment that brings freedom for many. Fifthly, now some of you get ex excited at this point, those of us who like alliteration in sermons. I'm starting to think, we've had four R's. Are we really going to be hopeful of, of five or six R's this morning? Well, I've chosen a word for this one, rendering, and I'm not talking about the stuff that goes up on the outside of your house. Uh, but you know that time when somebody comes to Jesus and asks if it's right to pay taxes to Caesar? One of those controversial moments uh, where Jesus is presented with two polar options and the wisdom of Jesus that won't align himself with either and, and finds another way. He says, whose face is on the coin? And the guy says, oh, Caesar's face. He says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Offer to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
and give to God what is God's. And Jesus saw his life as a, a rendering, a giving, an offering to God. We're about to celebrate this meal together, and I'll say a, a word about that in, in just a moment. But this meal that Jesus has, has given to the church, we sometimes call it the Last Supper, and yet it was the first of many that the disciples and us would, would enjoy together, rightly understood. It was not the Last Supper, it was the Last Passover. It was the first Feast of, of Remembering. And Jesus explains it in this way, and I've deliberately blanked out a word, and I wonder if you can spot the word that's just blanked out. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is... Yeah, we often think the word broken is there, don't we? But it's, it's not the word broken in any of the gospel accounts. It's the word given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some of you got that right now, feeling very smug. Don't be proud. It's not, that's not the object of the exercise. It's not wrong to say broken, because Jesus does very deliberately, in case they'd missed it, show them, this is my body. Broken for you. Sometimes words fail, don't they? And you have to see it. Broken. But Jesus doesn't use that word there. He uses the word given. A word that can mean to be offered. This is my body. Taking place in, in the Passover meal where they remember the lamb that was given and offered for their freedom. And Jesus is saying, my death is an offering to God made on your behalf. Do this in remembrance of me. When we break the bread, we're not somehow re-sacrificing Jesus. That does not need to happen. He has been given once and for all. Neither do we sort of make some sort of pledge that we can make it up or, or be part of it. Jesus has done it for us. We do it in remembrance of an offering that's been made uh, on, on our behalf. Jesus once put it this way, therefore, and we'll come back to that word in a moment, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. It's a rendering. It's an offering. I have the power to lay it down. I've got the power to take it up again. This command I've received from my Father. Jesus did not die with those words into their hands. I surrender my body. But into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. His death was to be an offering. And it can be if he wanted to be on your behalf. And then finally, uh, another R, thank you, uh, a raising. This phrase that's come up time and time again, the Son of Man must be lifted up. There are certain words, aren't there, that can mean two things at the same time. This word raising, for example, I was reading the other day about the war in Ukraine and how certain cities have been Raised to the ground. Seems like a strange phrase, doesn't it? Raised to the ground. But we can mean it in that way, or we can mean raising something and lifting something up. And Jesus spoke about his death as a lifting up. And that's for, for, for a, a key reason. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He said this, signifying by what death he would die. 
So like raising in our day, there were two key ways in which this phrase lifted up were used uh, in the original Greek language. One was to be crucified, to be lifted up from the earth. Crosses, I don't know if you've ever seen a real life one, they're terrifying because they're huge. They were designed for, for maximum impact, for uh, as many people as possible to see and have that sort of active deterrent in their mind. You do not mess with Rome. You do not break the law. You do not rebel. They were lifted up high off the earth. People there would have known, signifying what death he would die. They would have known what he meant. But also in the Greek, this word can mean to be exalted. It was a word that was reserved for sovereigns on the day they sat on their throne and were enthroned for the very first time. And so at the one and the same time, Jesus is being lifted up to be crucified, but he's also being raised. He's also being exalted. He's also being glorified in that one moment. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he talks to them about humility. And there is no greater example of humility that you can think of than Jesus. And he describes him so beautifully and tells us to be the same as the one who was equal to the Father, yet who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he was not done yet, to death, and to that, Paul adds the words, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name Jesus, every knee will bow. And of course, as we read it through, we sort of superimpose it, don't we, over the story of the cross, uh, the Black Saturday, Easter Sunday morning, and, and we see it as two separate things. But that word, therefore, holds together these two things uh, in perfect unity. It's not like Jesus was humbled in death and then later on exalted to the highest place. Therefore, Paul says, this is so deep in the kingdom, in the ways of Jesus, in the ways of God. Therefore, Jesus' um, ultimate humiliation and exaltation take place at one and the same time. So you and I can live a life that is pursuing status and importance or we can surrender or we can let go and find that there are arms of grace that are waiting to hold us and to shelter us and to forgive us and to heal us and those are the arms of a risen Savior. Rebuilding, remedy, revealing, ransom, rendering, and raising. And then as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, the weight of this work having been on his shoulders his, his whole life long, choosing the cross with every breath, because if it wasn't a perfect sacrifice, it would not suffice for the weight of sin, the price that we had to pay. And from there, he shouts, he bellows, it is finished. A word that was shouted when a house was finally ready for people to live in. A word that was often shouted on the battlefield when victory was won. A word that was written across a debt that had been fully paid off. It is finished. It's done. It's over. It's paid for. It's dealt with. It's defeated. 
a word that would have sent panic and chaos right into the pits of hell and caused rejoicing right into the corners of the highest heaven is finished. That's what Jesus came to do. That's how Jesus saw his death. And if you ask him to be, that's the kind of savior and friend that he can be for you. Let's pray together.